Hello everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro and with me... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, a hypothetical offspring of Cruella de Vil and Sauron. That's from... Order of the Stick. Right, right. Which has been getting... I mean, it's always been good, but it's really been ramping it's it up right. now. Yeah. Like, when's the new one coming out? When's the new one coming out? This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwart, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Seekwart is on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Uh, not via Seekwart, but we should mention that uh, Julian Darwis's Martian comic just got issue number three digitally. Mm. We're not going to review that because, well, we know him and, you know, Conflict of interest. Yeah. And also, but, he know he good. He doesn't need our help. Yeah, but you should read it. Seek it out. Shall we go on to the news, Sean? Let's. Uh, we want to start... I would like to ask you a question, Sean. Go ahead. Have you heard of the comic book festival Angulian? More than I wish I had, to be honest. Have you heard about the phrase, jumping the shark? Yes. Because, see, that did not happen here. What Angulian festival did is jump into the shark's mouth <laughs> and then go out via the back room, as it were. I okay, think you so might be giving them a little too much credit. There. We've it's, we've talked about wow. the big screw up that Angulium had two episodes ago, was it? Yeah. When they announced the nominees the for lifetime. the Grand Prix Award, which had thirty nominees, zero women, and there was a lot of hoopla la on the web, and people were angry, and the guys running the show basically said, No, 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 it's okay. There aren't any women in comic book history. I'm not gonna try the accent. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Sean. No, that's okay. So They were but, also very passive aggressive. Yeah, yeah. But you know, What's done was done. Or so we thought. It was a big screw up, but people sort of moved on with hopes that next year will be better. So the actual award ceremony came up with actual women, you know, nominees, you know, you had uh, Miss Marvel and you had Fiona Staples and, you know. These were for other categories. Yes, for other categories. Perfectly fine. The evening was hosted by a very famous French comedian who I do not know because he's a very famous... French comedian, and I am not French. At least it wasn't Gerard Depardieu, because that would have made this perfect. Richard Guité. He basically ordered everybody up on the stage quickly, quickly now, he said, and he announced all the awards in eight minutes because we want to go on to the drink and dance. Then people became suspicious. And after he ordered all of these people in eight minutes and gave them the awards, turns out, haha, these were fake awards. These were not the real awards. And then he rushed all of these people from the stage and said, well, now we're going to start giving the actual awards. So for eight minutes, a lot of people, most of them do not speak French and do not understand the odd intricacies of French humor. And apparently there was apparently a pun involved about the type of award and, you know, the golden cat or something. But you know why I don't understand it? Because they don't speak French. You know who else doesn't speak French? All of the nominees. Most of the nominees, yes. I think that so you... for eight minutes, you know, people either said, "Oh, I won an award," or publishers tweeted to their respected uh, nominees in the U.S. Congratulations, you've got an award. You've got the Angulium. You've got not the Oscar, the oh, uh, movies and their golden statues. Who cares? So you got one of the biggest award in all of comic doom, and then oh no, you did not. I think you might be giving the host and the Angulium a bit too much credit because. Like, try to reconstruct the thought process here, right? The guy is standing on the stage, and he's like, so this award ceremony has already been the center of some controversy, which has been magnified by the fact that the organizers did not respond well to the criticism, right? That only made the backlash worse. 
So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say that all of these people have won see, fake awards. No, no, no. See, it was, Won't pl- that it was planned in advance with the organizers' blessing because they actually gave candies as fake awards when people were oh. on stage. So, so it's not even a last-minute thing. The organizers... Well, I'll get to the organizer in a, in a minute. Their response is also relevant to how all of this is being perceived. But you're attributing that to a quirk of French humor. I'm saying that can't be bad it jokes, yeah, because, terrible jokes. Because it's a failure to recognize that this ceremony was already tainted. There yeah. was already a lot of negativity to basically douse a forest fire with napalm and be like. Why not humiliate all of these industry luminaries, some of which are highly respected and well-liked in the industry? Why not just humiliate all of them publicly at an awards ceremony? It's doubling down on stupidity in a way that goes beyond, oh, it was just a joke, which was exactly what the organizers tried to say. Their response was... You know, let's continue our passive-aggressive streaks since it's going so well. And they, what they said amounted to people were so bored with previous ceremonies, so they thought they'd spice it up. And it's too bad that some people there didn't appreciate the Yeah, humor. like all of the people. I could see a version in which the joke works. A, if it wasn't after all the big stuff that happened with the Grand Prix. And B, if you actually fought it out. Like... If the awards were obviously fake, like if you said, we're inviting Brian K. Vaughn to the stage for, you know, Most Magnificent Dragon Award. Mm-hmm. We're inviting the 10-year-old guy who writes X-Cop, Malachi Ward, on the stage for the Grand Prix for Life Achievement. That's an actual joke it joke. It still doesn't work, though, and, and I'll tell you why. It's because this is not the Nickelodeon Teen Awards, right? This is not an award that is meaningless. Apparently it is. If you Well, now it these, is. Yeah, these people act like 11 year Now it is. But I'm saying in terms of importance in the industry, in terms of relevance, this is like someone saying, why don't we just pretend to give people fake Emmys? Nobody does that because the Emmys are perceived as being important. So for the Angoulême to be, let's just throw all of our credibility out the window and give fake awards, you get to the point where you suddenly realize... They're lowering themselves to the level of the Teen Choice Awards. See, so That's I, where you can have an award called uh, Best Kiss and then have the yeah. co-host kiss because it's Nickelodeon. Or, or the Smorgies Award. Or the, I mean, listen, when we gave people the Smorgies, we didn't give them fake Smorgies. They earned their well, achievements. Well, obviously, if we want to succeed as the Angulian Festival did next year, we'll have to give the Fakies Award. I think we can be a little better than that because yeah. really this was... So I can't, I, I I can't respect them yeah, anymore. I can only have two theories about that. A, either someone from the Eisner is a plant within the Angulium <laughs> and he's trying to destroy the competition. That's a Didio theory. Uh, that, uh, B, they heard about the Yugos and they thought there was a competition in destroying prestigious awards. Oh my god. So they're like, we have to work hard. The wet dogs are back. Yeah. So yeah, that's well, such a terrible shame, such an act of... Stupidity. It's meanness compounded upon stupidity. This is where I lose respect for them because when they put out that first passive aggressive response about the, you know, the, the women at the Grand Prix, I was like, you know what? You guys are going to be dumb and misogynistic and sexist. And if that is your take on it and you're standing behind that, that's your business. I don't have to respect that position, but it's your position. This is just. Let's go all the way, right? We're not going to be stupid by half measures. We're going to go full moron. We're going to go like Tom Green 
all the way into like the levels of stupidity where you can feel your brain cells dying Ooh, as they're Tom having because somebody had this conversation. Tom Green hosting Angle Yum. I'd like That's to see that. about the best that they could do, right? I, now. I, I'd like to I see I mean, that. really, there were reports of people leaving the, the ceremony with tears in their eyes. You don't do that to people, even nominees, like setting us, even if they weren't going to win anything, which that would have been hella awkward if they got the fake award and then the real award. That would have been even worse. Mm -hmm. So you don't spike the ball like that for people who are professionals in their field. Unless it's someone like Frank Miller, who I would have, I would have liked to see that Jeff, because some people have it coming, but you don't do that to Fiona Staples. You don't do that to Brian K. Vaughn. You don't do that to people who within the industry command a certain measure of respect. They may not be Mr. and Mrs. Popularity, but I've never heard people say like bad things about Brian K. Vaughn. He seems to be perfectly... Perfectly perfect in every way. Sure. So, I don't understand. It's not that they pulled this prank on people within the industry who, because of their reputations, are have learned to have it like, coming. They could have given best artists to Rob Liefeld, right? That would have been funny because Rob Liefeld can laugh at himself. He knows that he is perceived a certain way within the industry, and he rolls with it. They could have given it to Mark Miller, Right. That's a guy who best also... Kids, best Kids Book Award sure, to Mark Miller. Sure, Best Sex Scene. Whatever, right? Again, like if you're talking about fake awards and fake award categories, you could do that. And he would laugh it off. But you don't do that to people who are not of that mindset, you know, who don't have that self-parodical instinct. What a mess, I'm telling you. I'm sort of waiting to see what will happen next. You can Angulium... I don't think they'll survive this. No, no, they'll, they'll survive this because it's so big in France. The question is, will they have the respect of the international comics industry? Probably not, because I can't see if they do this again next year, right? First of all, there will be immediate scrutiny in terms of the gender bias, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that's going to come to anybody's mind. And then you'll have people going to these awards. Before this whole fiasco, there were people who were turning down the Grand Prix, out of solidarity with the women who supposedly never contributed to the history of comic books, according to them. So I don't see them having any kind of respect. Much like the Hugos, this is an institution that has shot itself in the foot. And I don't think that they'll recover. Well, the Hugo didn't shoot itself in the foot. Someone else tried to shoot the Hugos in the foot. Let's be yeah. fair. This isn't a popular opinion, but I do blame the Hugos in part for enabling the wet dogs, only because they operated a system that had very, very big loopholes, which the wet dogs exploited. Mm -hmm. So it, it's sort okay, of... Okay, we're becoming the Yugo podcast, let's, so yes. let's, let's move okay. on. So the grand... Uh, next bit of news. Next bit of news. So there have been a slew of cancellations. Mm -hmm. Let's take it from the top, right? So the first book that was announced that got the chop was Frank Thierry's Black Knight. This that's, was over at That's Marvel. the first cancellation from the all-new, all-different Marvel after five Yes. Oh, okay. After five issues and done. I wasn't aware of that. Seeing as how nobody asked for this book and we still don't know what Marvel were smoking when they greenlighted it. No. I can't feel that bad. Because you remember when it came well, up in the solicitations, we were both like, Frank Thierry on Black Knight. Tom, did you ask for this book? Because I know I didn't. Well, I didn't ask for a lot of things and a lot of things I asked for get canceled anyway. I'm sad for Frank Thierry. Because, you know, he started it. But at this point, I sort of have to assume that most Marvel writers launching something know they have five to ten issues at best before it's either get canceled or revived or rebooted. This ship is sinking. What is the last Marvel title that survived for more than 20 issues before a reboot? Oof. 
Mark Waid's Daredevil? I guess so, and Deadpool. You know, Deadpool. But Deadpool has been playing crazy with its numbering for years. Yeah, but the last... Like 930... No, but the last renumbering, actually... What was it? Jerry Duggan? Jerry Duggan's last series ran for more than 20 issues. Bendis's New Avengers. But that's years ago. Or All New X-Men. All New X-Men survived for like 20 issues. 40. 40? Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. There was a lot of double shipping there. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Double shipping plays a part Mm. in... Like, because so many books are being double shipped now, it's not a question of issues. It's a question of years. Mm. Like, how long does this book actually run? Yeah. When Jason Aaron has to write three number one of four or Dan Slott four number ones of Spider-Man or five by now, I think. Probably. That's why Jason Aaron shaved his beard. (laughs) He's like, I can't handle the weight anymore of all these number ones. So you had to assume he knew that that's about the length he will get. I disagree agree because it's true for writers who are new to the business frank terry comes from the 1990s this is not a guy who's used to having the rug pulled out from under him even his last major project at marvel if i'm remembering correctly was weapon x that ran for at least 25 issues he did wolverine for a while in the early 2000s no was that when he was having that whole thing with garth ennis and the punisher that sort of feud? I think so. Oh, with the gay magazines yeah, the, okay, and bad jokes, but yeah. yeah, but okay. So that no, I think that run. That, well, that was that ran for like. 20, but he came into an ongoing run. It wasn't yeah. renumbered. Well, yeah, back when Marvel actually had this thing of you know we can change your writer on a run, <laughs> Not and the, the numbering the will continue. It does point to a larger problem, though, in that Marvel's ability to sustain books that are not agenda defining so to speak it's not avengers spider-man or the x-men well we don't care they're just not lasting i will admit that i don't mourn this book but i do mourn all new ghost rider that's a book that i wanted to go on for years and it didn't and here is frank thierry who gets five issues to do apparently not much because again black knight right marvel has how many titles right now 70 that Some, too. Something like that. That's so, part of it too. So you have to assume, you know, the audience cannibalizes itself. And like you said, a lot of them are double shipping at four and five dollars a pop. And this is something that's the audience is just not there to actually support all of that. The reason that it's frustrating is because Marvel is in this very strange interstitial place right now, where on the one hand, they're putting up books like Greg Wiseman's Starbrand and Nightmask, or Wade and Samney on Black Widow or Ms. Marvel. Al Ewing's Avengers. Al Ewing's New Avengers. Like these are books that if Marvel had had sense going into this reboot, these would be flagship titles. These would be the books that are saying, listen, all of that old stuff that has been driving you readers away all this time, this is the new stuff. Come and see. But alongside that, you have Bendis doing uh, whatever the hell he's doing with Spider-Man. You have Frank Thierry's Black Knight. You have... You know, all of those unappealing old Two Iron Mans, two Captain Americas. And, and, you know, the prospect of bringing Captain America back again. The books that are suffering here, like Ryan North's Squirrel Girl, should be doing a lot better than it is. Well, I assume it's doing better in either digital or in, you know, TPB. Because I would hope so. It's not canceled after five Yet. issues of the... Well, it's more than what they've given the Black Yeah, Knight. but like, that's the thing. There's no concentrated strategy here of saying these books are failing because you are not marketing them correctly. Clearly, a readership exists for them because, you know, people are reading Squirrel Girl. Well, it's not something that is, exists in the either. Nobody may, knows about Marvel it. should take a clue from, you know who? From Marvel Comics, the publishers of Star Wars, who have a very small, slim line of prestige books 
the least of which sells more than the mid-tier of Marvel books. They overworked the line for way too long. And but they're stop- doing that to Star Wars now, too. Yeah, but they're doing it slowly. How many ongoing uh, Star Wars titles are now there? there's three. three. Well, there's three but- and like two miniseries at the time. That's it. There's that many Avengers titles at the same time. Yeah. There's that many Spider titles at the same time. Like, so did we need... And again, you know that I, I respect Mark Wade a great deal. Did we need his Avengers and Al Ewing's new Avengers simultaneously? Setting aside the fact that they're different angles, these are two team books with young and different Avengers. Yeah, and it's like you you don't need both, especially when those aren't even the books that are getting the push, right? Because no, what people really want to talk about are is Jerry Duggan's Uncanny Avengers and whatever it is that's setting up Civil War Two. Do people talk about Jerry Duggan's Uncanny Avengers? The only reason they talk about it is because that's part of the whole Civil War Two. Or, mm. or no, sorry. First, they're doing Avengers standoff. Yes. Then they're doing Civil, Civil War, War II. Two. It's turning into a situation where the only things that are getting the limelight are the things that set up the events, which nobody wants anymore. And then they're complaining that their readership is dropping out. And then books like, I'm not mourning Black Knight, but you know, again, all new Ghost Rider deserved better than it got. So many books that Marvel have lost going into Secret Wars. And that they're not going to last the year. And you know they're not going to last the year. No. So there's no strategy Well, here. we'll see when the new number ones hit the stand in four months' time. I won't be there. I, I have made a commitment that if I'm they... I'm mostly not there as it is. I'm basically reading, I think, L. Ewing stuff, and I'll wait for the trades on these. And I'll be reading Black Panther number one for review purposes. And yeah. that's it, because who cares? This is how they get you. I am trying very, very hard to disconnect myself from Marvel because I can see where the trends are going. The number of $5 books goes up every month. Yeah. First it was six, then it was eight, then now it's 12. And it'll be more as things go on. And like $5 bi-monthly titles. These are characters that I love. This is a universe that I love. And but they I have recognize some, that. And they, they have won- some very talented people working yes. there. And there will always be the possibility of entertaining stories being told in that framework by those talented writers. G. Willow Wilson is a talented writer. Al Ewing, Jason Al Ewing, Aaron. Jason Aaron, Mark Wade. They have people there who are doing good work. But as much as I may love this universe, it will not love me back. It will try to squeeze every dime out of me. And I will not play that game anymore. And I, I recognize like that's the difficulty of it, right? It's saying... You're turning down a Mark Wade Black Widow book. Mark Wade could probably do really good spy stories. There's potential here for an, a genuinely good read. Not at $5. Not at $5 an issue. So I don't know how to cope with that. It's just, it's a slow process of disentangling yourself from this franchise and saying, you know what? I'll see the movie. That's the well, best that I can do. And on what used to be the other side of the street and now is the other <laughs> side of the country. <laughs> yeah. So uh, DC. Okay, let's preface this by saying that a lot of what we're about to talk about involves unsubstantiated rumors. However, these rumors began and were then confirmed by Dan DiDio. So there's something going on here in terms of credibility. Okay, so what's going on? DC has announced something called Rebirth. According to Rich Johnston and Bleeding Cool... This is take it with about a pound. Take of it salt. with a pound of salt. Take it with Lot's wife, basically. Grab her, throw her in there. You know, 
go from there. But what he is claiming and what DC, it does fit a lot That's of what not we've de- heard. Has yet to deny. They haven't denied it. And it also fits a lot of what we've heard Didio say in recent months is that Rebirth is going to be another reboot. An, a line-wide reboot? A line-wide reboot. I haven't been tracking all of the changes, but Jin Wen Yang is off Superman. He's mm. being permanently replaced by Peter Tomasi. Grayson is being canceled. Midnighter is being canceled. So yeah. there goes my entire interest in the DCU. It's a, okay. That will be about 12 issues, a year since the last reboot. Apparently so. There has been talk of... A, double shipping also. They're going uh, double shipping on a lot of titles. Apparently, Scott Snyder is moving to Detective Comics. Now, this is something that he confirmed. Well, yeah, but he's you know, he's moving Detective from Comics. a Batman comic to yeah. a Batman comic. So. And Batman is going to be written by Tom King. So they're sort of moving things around, see, but I'm not okay. happy about that. Well, see, I see what they're doing with that. Because Scott Snyder's Batman book is the top seller. So the hope is, if he goes to... Detective Comics, he'll bump the sales of that one. And when Tom King goes to Batman, he'll keep the sales. So they'll have two top flight Batman books instead of the one that everybody reads and the one that... Who cares about Detective Comics right now? The reason that that's not going to work, though, is because Tom King, based on his career so far, and he has been doing some fantastic work, but he has been doing fantastic work with characters that DC were not that concerned about i mean they put nightwing through a lot before they gave him to tom king all that villains united nonsense well, jason he, aaron started up ghost rider in marvel sure you know. but who cares about ghost rider right well, who cared about nightwing until exactly so tom king you know omega man and also at marvel with vision yeah he has been at his best with a certain amount of freedom freedom that is afforded by the fact that these are not a-listers you put him on batman what could he possibly do? I'm not Scott saying Snyder that... Scott Snyder did pretty well. But Scott Snyder... And Scott he, Snyder even, wasn't a big name before he came no, onto Batman. He no. basically jumped onto it. But listen, but you have to admit, like, I know that Scott Snyder's run is almost universally praised. I know that people love it. You have to admit that when you look at it in context, it's a lot. I, like, I, there's a lot of... I, I don't of, think it's the greatest thing ever. I think it's a perfectly solid run. And I think more importantly than that... He killed Batman of how many okay, times? Okay, but Scott Snyder, he's doing what Scott Snyder wants to do. At this point, nobody at DC is telling Scott Snyder nothing. Right. Except, well, except please, Mr. Snyder, will you give us some more of your titles? Pretty please. Could you do something in Vertigo instead of Image? Maybe? Perhaps? Uh, no? He's not doing that much at Image. I well, mean, no. I wish he were. Well, he's doing Witches, right? Or is Witches it, has been it on hiatus for... Well, yeah, as most Image titles are. But yeah. back to the rebirth thing. I'm both sad slash annoyed and not really surprised because the DCU reboot has been a financial failure. Basically <laughs> straight off the cliff. And again, they tried... They tried they giving, giving the public something different. Now, we both hated Prez. Top to bottom, but yeah. it was different. One cannot deny it. We didn't even bother reading Doomsday, but it was something different. Title starring Doomsday. Uh, nobody read uh, All-Star Section 8, except for, you know, hardcore Garth Ennis fans. Almost nobody bothered with the bizarre title. They tried doing something different, and the public told them, no, 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 we want, we just want Batman. We don't even want your version of, you know, Superman written by somebody who actually bothers me. We just want Batman. You give us some more of that. So I'm sorry. At this point, and you know, they're doing the Vertigo thing and nobody buys that. So at this point, DC has to be like, well, 
Okay, we tried being new and innovative to a degree as much as we can, as much as we allow ourselves. We gave you Nightwing, we gave you Midnighter, we gave you Prez, and you you said no. How can I tell DC, well, no, you should keep on doing this stuff I like simply there's because I like it? There's something wrong here that goes beyond the content of the books that they're publishing. Because if you'll remember, the whole point of the DCU marketing phenomenon, whatever it is you want to call it, was that their sales were slipping pre-convergence. That was the whole point. So if they're going back to the way they were doing things before... I mean, I don't even... It's not even clear if this is a reversion to pre-convergence or pre-52, because Didio has been talking about, wouldn't it be nice to see what happened to the old Superman from before? And I'm like, listen, you did the 52 because your sales were dropping. You did convergence partly as filler because they were moving, but also you figured, well, you might as well just go for a sales stunt. So you're doing these sales stunts. The results of these sales stunts are failures, but you're coming from failure. There's a larger problem with DC right now, and I don't know what it is. I, I can't pin it down to like a specific factor well, that might be contributing. It's, it's but as, as there's the people, something else. It's, it can't as just the people be... in uh, Sketched uh, said. I think Sketched a web blog, website, whatever. It was a very good website. Every one of these planned jumping on points basically only served as a jumping off points to old readers. Sure. But you that's t- always the case. No, but... With uh, the New 52 reboot and uh, Convergence, you basically told all readers, this is the end of a universe, the universe that you were invested in. This is your perfect jumping up point. And for new readers, well, they just weren't there to be caught. Uh, new 52 worked to a degree. You remember the first year, the sales were huge. Yeah. I remember the first three months, Aquaman's second orders, the second printing of Aquaman outsold the X-Men. Unheard of, even with Jeff Jones on it. Unheard of, unbelievable. But it dropped and they just couldn't keep it. The comic book people are just sand through their fingers. That's where it is though. That is exactly the problem. Because the stupidity on the part of Didio here is his assumption that going back will draw back the readers who left DC. Speaking of going back, one part of the reboot that we have not to talk about. That was so strange. I'm sort of beguiled by it. DC is bringing back Hanna-Barbera characters into a comic form as our not really darker and edgier reboot, just a more mature reboot. It's so strange. So they're having... And nobody asked for a more mature Scooby-Doo. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. So they're nobody doing Scooby-Doo as uh, reimagined as a group only able to put right an experiment gone horribly wrong. There are no eccentric loners in a horror mask here. Instead, the group are facing a world full of mutated creatures infected by a nanite virus that enchants their fears and baser instincts. Ms. Nelson. Ms. Nelson, I know you can hear me. Shut it down. Shut it all down. So if this is your Hail Mary pass... They're facing, I don't know, the Scarecrow? Fear gas? No. Um, no I'm not and here see- for seeing Sh- Shaggy get his arm ripped off in a comic by Jeff Johns. Uh, Reiki racist. W- wacky Re- racist. Say that again? <laughs> racist. That sounded like wacky racist, and I was about to say, mm, <laughs> not that reboot either. No. <laughs> that would be a strange reboot. That would be... My English. A- I apologize. Woo. My Hebrew accent. Yes. So they're reimagining the classic comedy cartoon chase film as a Mad Max-inspired Post-apocalyptic nope. wasteland. No. And the one I actually care about somewhat 
future quest in which Johnny Quest and his crew meet with Space Ghost for an action adventure drawn by Doc Shaner. And I'm like, that's see, that is the ta- yeah. that's the talent trap. That's yeah, exactly, is that now yeah. exactly it's, what Marvel's doing? It, it's Doc Shaner. But no, no, and but no, and even if I like some of these in theory, I don't believe they'll survive more than five issues <laughs> again. Are you kidding me? Because. Who there is no Hanna Barbera. There is comics? no nostalgic audience for that. The only no, reason. No, no, no. Hang on. There may be a nostalgic audience for Hanna Barbera characters. Only that the... does not translate to them being yeah. in comics and being more mature remakes the, of these properties. The only, I think, the only version of Hanna Barbera characters that people younger than sixty nowadays are familiar with. Are the comedy versions that ran in Cartoon Network like Not true. Space Ghost Coast to Coast no, and no, 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 no. Uh, Harvey Birdman and Turner? Do people my, actually care about my, Harvey Birdman? Listen, my generation—you're talking well, about. Well, Sean, you are seventy-two. <laughs> Only in spirit. My generation, when you're talking about people who grew up in the mid to late '80s. You know, they're in their 30s now. This is DC's readership, right? Like these are the—they're not aiming at kids anymore. <laughs> Primarily American audience. Hanna-Barbera cartoons were in syndication. They were always on. All of that stuff, they were there. So it's not true See, to say me, that there's no... F- you don't have it. Yeah, for me, I, I'm familiar with them. I know they were there, but that's it. They no, were there. there is a nostalgic They were the there. thing that was ran between episodes of G.I. Joe and Transformers, a.k.a. Right. the things I actually cared about. No, so these things coexisted. Okay. But because of syndication, there was always there. There was Top Cat... There was uh, uh, Scooby Doo, all of the old properties. Uh, Harvey Birdman, Harvey Birdman. Yeah, that's the one. Sure. If you want something darker but than again, Edger, you have a team called Satan's Six. But this is so typical of like DC's failure of vision here because it was all. If you were trying to no no no, if you were trying to tap into an existing cache of nostalgia, why in the hell would you take these properties and then say we're going to do? A grown-up version of Scooby-Doo where they fight monsters and they're running around with like laser guns. Because the Looney Tunes reboot worked so well. You remember (sighs) Lunatics Unleashed? It was so popular. Everybody liked it. Nobody but me has ever forgotten it. That killed it. it. I'm pretty sure that that's what killed the Looney Tunes because I have not seen Hyde. Well, they're doing the Looney Tunes show. Sure, but who's watching it? Nobody. It's lasted more than two seasons, so I guess somebody. Like, you want to see Merry Melodies, you just go to YouTube and look it up. But... Again, like this is, I don't even know what the thinking well, process is. Here. I'm thinking some of these will be good because, again, like you said, there's the level of talent there, and it'll. One of them is drawn by Doc Shaner. It will look beautiful. Are you going to buy it? Are you going to subscribe to this no. book? Okay, so because I don't believe it will survive more than th- five issues. But that's exactly the thing, right? You're saying, okay, so there's this guy here that you really admire, and he's doing this book, and you might take the first issue. But if you are not subscribing to this series, then DC has already failed in attempting to appeal to you by putting this guy on this book. If you are not buying this book, if you're only saying, no, I'm just going to look at the first issue because I don't know if it's going to stick around, there is a failure there that has nothing to do with the talent. They could put your favorite writer and your favorite, like your dream team on this book, and you'd be like, well, I don't know. Well, Brendan is Graham Wacky Racist. Okay. okay. Brendan Graham Wacky Racist. Who's your favorite artist? Brendan Graham. Brendan Graham writing and drawing? Yeah. Okay. If that was the name on this solicitation, yeah, text, I, I would you'd buy subscribe? Ten, I would buy 10 copies to make it survive. Okay, but that's you, me. your automatic assumption I'm, would I'm, be that you would have to buy 10 yeah, copies I'm, I'm in order fa- for I'm a fanatic. I don't know. James Stokoe's... Well, James Stokoe would, would draw... Well, he would draw one issue and then it will be gone forever. 
would you subscribe to these books? When these preview texts are coming out, they're like, come subscribe to these series. The fact that these names and what they are putting out is not enough for you to do that says that there's something wrong here that goes beyond mm. the combination of talent and book. That's what it is. And I don't know, like there's some other factor here because DC is just spiraling out of control well, at this point. You don't have to fix the universe. You really don't. You just have to cut down the fat, publish good titles, give them a chance to grow an audience. It worked for Saga. It worked for The Walking Dead. They're treating Maybe this... it can actually work for you. You don't have to That's reboot every single thing. They're treating it as an ontological I'm, problem. I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about TV in the 80s and 90s where even the worst failing of sitcoms got two or three seasons to shine itself. And you wouldn't have Seinfeld today because today a TV network would cancel it after the first lackluster season, not knowing, not even imagining that, well, seasons two through nine would be one of the biggest hits ever. You know, sure. Friends wouldn't survive. The Simpsons wouldn't survive today. And there have been a lot of sitcoms, particularly in the last few years, that were canceled even though they had that quality of, if you let this go, people will... And yet Two and a Half Men is in season 10. No, I think it's done. It I think reached, it's done. It reached but it season made, 10. I mean, listen. It's like... It's two ten, and a Half Men went to like season st- 11. Statistically now, Two and a Half Men is 10 times better than Enlisted. Smallville. Four ta- two times better than uh, Arrested Development. Twice as good no. as Community. No. But yeah. the, These are numbers, Sean. You can but, argue with numbers. I, well... I can argue with numbers, but that's a different subject. Okay. So uh, speaking of numbers, yes, let's talk about the number one million. What does the number one million say to you, Tom? Something from Austin Powers. That's actually a good association yeah, to have. No. So speaking of the, Doctor the number I wish to have in my bank account in dollars, oh, that I don't would be know. Nice. Uh, but speaking of Doctor Evil, that's actually funny that you bring him up. So Ike Perlmutter, who is our own Doctor Evil in a sense. Gave Donald Trump a million dollars. Okay, let me... Yeah, yeah. Let, before, it, before, it is, <laughs> before all the nitpicking. <laughs> okay, so it's more accurate to say that Ike Perlmutter donated a million dollars to a charity connected to Donald Trump. I don't think it's libelous to say that this charity has a certain whiff of scandal about it in terms of how just much... Just because it, it's connected to Donald Trump. And no, we not just like because it's connected to Donald Trump, but also because... There have been suspicions of oh. this charity well, not serving veterans. Well, I have not read to. about it. In any deeply, event. So. Regardless of the validity of this charity, the news still sinks like an overheated sewer because Perlmutter is the head of a company that believes, or at the very least claims to believe, things that Trump would never support. Like, I wish, I wish that some dumbass Fox News reporter would ask Donald Trump what he thinks about Black Captain America and just watch the racism flow. It'd be like, well, the we Falcon need to have... Well, the Falcon is an illegal immigrant, I believe. Well, sure. He'd be like, well, we in order to make America great again, we need to go back to the traditional values that I have never followed in my life, but that we all should just follow. Anyway, I don't want to get into He's American a really politics. big fan of the 1950s anti-communist Captain the America. The 1950s that never existed. But in any event... This is a situation where I sort of understand both sides because Ike Perlmutter as a private citizen, this was a million dollars of his own money. It's not Marvel's money, right? Yeah. Having said that, there is, see, it, this is hard for me. I have this desire when Marvel do something public that supports diversity, that promotes you know, variation and breaking like the old paradigms of of sexism and racism within the industry. When they make these gestures, 
part of me wants to say, good for them, you know, kudos, they deserve it. And lately, you know, my, my inherent cynicism has been asserting itself in the sense that Axel Alonso recently went on this whole bragging interview about how Marvel bagged Tanahisi Coates. He's the only black writer at Marvel. The fact that you picked him up after people were pointing out that there were zero black writers at Marvel, like you did this in response to criticism, and even then your response was, let's have the one black guy. It does raise some very uncomfortable questions as to how genuine Marvel's supposed commitment to diversity really is. I'm not taking anything away from the authenticity of someone like Sana Amanat, who at the very least puts her money where her mouth is. When she says she's committed to diversity, you can tell from the projects that she oversees that she believes it. And she is doing well, what she can. It's one of these, when you're saying Marvel, are you talking about Marvel Comics, you know, the comp, the people who make the comics and the publishers. Are you talking about Marvel Entertainment, the, the vision within Disney, who was just a corporation within a corporation? Well, what? hang on. Marvel Comics is a subsidiary of Marvel Entertainment. It's not like yes. this. Marvel Studios now, at least, exists as a separate entity that is directly connected to yeah, Disney. Yeah, but it's one of these, when you're saying Marvel, who are we talking about? Are we talking about everybody in the company? Are we talking about the heads of the company? No, How we're talking about the heads. Look, I don't doubt that certain writers make decisions or try to work towards diversity as part of their own desire. Al Ewing has talked about this a lot, right? Yeah. When he has African-American characters, why did he bring in Wiccan and Hulkling to the cast of New Avengers? For a very specific reason, right? This is not something that bothers him. It is something that he works towards. But on the other hand... Whenever you see these self-congratulatory screeds at Marvel, look how diverse we are. And this usually comes from people like Brevard, like Alonzo, like Perlmutter himself. It raises questions, right? Because then you go and do something like this. You align yourself with someone who Nick Spencer was making fun of in his first issue of Sam Wilson, Captain America, right? When the Serpent Society is parroting Donald Trump and then you give a Donald Trump charity a million dollars... There's a certain dissonance there that clouds all of your efforts. Well, a, I think I speak for the Serpent Society when I'm saying, please do not associate us with Donald Trump. <laughs> we we have, have better hair. We have some self-respect and we're not that terrible. We just want to rule the world. If we have to use yeah. toupees, they'll be made from real snake leather. You can tell. Okay. And I've never bought it. The screed of, you know, Marvel as an entity, is a pro- socially progressive entity, as anything other than a sales stunt for a certain degree. Now, it's not a problem for me because I don't, I never feel the need to buy a title based on, you know, diversity because you don't have to. There's enough good diverse titles. I buy them because they're good. I don't need to buy, say, Gem and the Holograms because, oh, it's an all-female title written by an all-female creative team. I buy it because it's a great title. I don't need to buy LU title to support, you know, diversity in a fictional universe because right. I need to buy them because Al Ewing is diversity a great writer. Diversity in itself is not enough, but there needs to be an environment to say that if a writer like, who's going to tell Brian K. Vaughn you can't have gay characters in your comic, right? Nobody's going to say that to him. So there needs to be an environment where there's a certain understanding that if you want to do this thing, you may, you don't have to. 
right? Marguerite Bennett does not need to include transgender characters in all of her books. It's not something that's mandated. If she chooses to do so, she has the talent to back it up, right? Yeah. That's fine. The problem is Marvel's editorial, like their administrative level, is taking these creative decisions as proof of some kind of overall policy. When they do that, stuff like this complicates that perception. Because then it's like, no, clearly this isn't something that well, you it, are... Uh, but again, to. it doesn't complicate it for me because I never believed it. I never had the thing of, oh, Marvel is a progressive company. You want to believe it. It's no, like, it's something I, I don't that... want to believe it because corporations don't care about... Corporations at best care about money. At worst, they care about sure. worse stuff. And people within the corporation can be good or bad. The heads of the corporation can be good or bad. The usually corporate, not. Yeah, usually the corporation people. cares about making money. That's why, you know, financial corporations exist. That's the one reason. So I never, never to a point said, well, I'm so disappointed in Marvel Comics as a financial division of Disney Entertainment Incorporated. I can be disappointed at, I don't know, smaller companies. I don't know, Black Mask. If Black Mask, you know, supports Donald Trump, I would be like, what? That's against the whole purpose. <laughs> That's against the whole stated purpose of your existence. Is it though? Yes. They, they're but the one who published, you know, the 1%. The no. 99% comics, they've published but by, Occupy comics. But by your logic, they are also corporations who are looking for financial revenue. Well, so. they're, they're actually corporations started with this one as a particular goal. Okay, so, but if you're looking at them only in terms of you're, financial entities, if their sole concern and their sole responsibility mm-hmm. is to get that money, why shouldn't Action Lab go chasing after Fox News or Ted Cruz or, or like, you know, the the really... The real conservative dirtbags. Why not just court them? Why not go full evangelical Christian and get all of that cash? Because well, clearly they have it. Well, Jack right? Chick makes money somehow, I assume. No, Jack Chick makes money because Satan sends him a check every now and then. If he's still alive. From the bank of the ninth layer of hell. It's it's a question of... Uh, because Marvel can afford itself, well, or thinks it can afford itself to alienate the kind of people who would stop buying a comic by a company whose head gives money to to Donald Trump. Black Mask Entertainment, for example, cannot afford to lose this audience because when they started, they basically built upon this particular niche of an audience. Mm-hmm. When your first launch is Occupy Comics, during Occupy Wall Street, right. you're basically saying, this is what we believe in and partly this is the audience we're looking for. Okay. And if suddenly the head of Black Mask gave money to Donald Trump, they're saying to, I think, at least 70% of their audience... This is what we are now, and this audience might leave them. It might not. I wouldn't leave them for that, because I still like too many of their titles. But see, so you're having the problem with Black Lab that, I, that I'm having no. with... Uh... No, but I don't have the problem, because as, as long as you're not giving money to Nazi war criminals... Okay, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> not that far away. Because I, I don't even believe that Donald Trump could do real damage, because as oh. far as I'm concerned, his old candidacy is a joke. It is. I mean, t- listen, he lost Iowa. The joke yeah, is the, reaching its punchline, yeah. but... You know, what, but do then you, again, what do you do when... It's a, one of these things that I always do on a, you know, basis per basis. I remember I didn't go Like if watch, Eric Stevenson did this, I would feel dirty. Yeah, but for example, I didn't go and watch the, uh, the Ender's Game movie. No. A, because it was easy oh, for no. me to avoid it because it looked terrible, but B, because at the time, a lot of my right. homosexual and lesbian friends told me, please don't watch it. We don't want it to succeed. Even though, you know, at retrospect, we know that the money didn't go to Oscar, uh, Orson no, Scott. He card. would have gotten something. No, and he already got paid and he wouldn't get, 
paid any extra if the movie succeeded or that failed. doesn't mean that we need to reward Lionsgate for yeah, at, aligning with him yeah at this and, point and this was, but this is a situation see that's interesting because that goes into the whole question of authorship right it's very easy to say drop Ender's Game because Ender's Game was written by Orson Scott Card if you don't want to be associated with Orson Scott Card if you don't want to give him a penny which by the way is a really bad idea because he contributes Might throw it at you no, he contributes to like some the very, worst of the yeah, worst. Yeah, some very reprehensible people. We're talking like you remember in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles intro when they would have that pan going into the sewer. Picture the camera going a little further down, like all the way down, and like somewhere down there, you would find yeah, it's okay. Orson but, Scott Card's uh, no, costumes. I don't want to become. I don't want us to talk about just Orson Scott Card. Right. The general rule of do I want to boycott something financially is that. You have to make your own decisions. Yes, and, but what I'm no, what I'm saying I is, don't, and I can never, there can never be a fast rule for that. You can never just say, uh, you know, the head of the company gave money to someone I don't like. I will no longer buy from this company because then you have to to ask yourself, does everybody at uh, Image never gave money to a bad cause? That is the difference. That is the quintessential difference mm. because there have been people who've been saying, you know, if Ike Perlmutter supports Donald Trump's policies, we should not be supporting Marvel. But then that's to say there are people who are working at Marvel and who are putting out books. This might be the problem with the industry, like the capital T, capital P problem with the industry. This entanglement of, on the one hand, creators, writers, and artists who believe certain things and administrators, editors, uh, managers, owners who have a completely opposing political view and but it's not- you can't do one without the other. That's the thing. I cannot buy G. Willow Wilson's Ms. Marvel without putting money in but Ike Perlmutter's pocket. But it's pocket. not a problem. Up to a certain degree. I give money to Alish Scott, you know, hand over fist. I do not agree with, I think, at least 70 to 90% of his politics. And I don't know if he gives money to some, to, I don't know, some political entity that I would disagree with. No, it's also the difference of you can disagree with a writer's politics. Up the, to a point. No, 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 no. Even Forget up to a point. You can completely mm. disagree with a writer's politics and still appreciate their work. The reason that Orson Scott Card tends to come up in these conversations is because there's a financial transaction there. You know that if you are giving money to him, he's giving that money to, what was their name? National Organization of Marriage or, you know, the Mormons who are like, we should marry 50 women, but no men. Yes. Those guys. So that's a situation where you can see the money trail. You can buy a Frank Miller comic, even if you don't agree with how he sees women and just say... I like his Dark Knight 3. That doesn't mean that you agree with what he believes in. It just means that you like the story. That's completely legitimate. But when it's something like this, where it's like, by proxy, I'm a Donald Trump supporter, if I buy Marvel. That's like, well, I don't know if that works for me. (laughs) That's something that they have to deal with. Well, luckily, as we spoke earlier, chances are we would not support Donald Trump via Marvel for... That's true. Time. That's just, you know, adding more fuel to the fire. TV and movie news. TV and movie news. The center will get a feature adaptation. We've talked about it? Yeah, we talked about the we've, first we've, issue, I think. No, not about the comics. We've mentioned the fact that there will be a film adaptation. See, it was news to me when you mentioned it, but we might have actually talked I, about it before. I, I, this is anyway, the Jeff Lemire series. Yeah, there's supposed to be an adaptation of the Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nugent sci-fi series adaptation. We reviewed the first arc. Sean really liked it. I did not. Still do, by the way. Yeah, yeah, fine. 
And we don't have a director yet, but we do have a studio, Sony. Okay. And we have a writer, script writer, a guy called Jess Wigtow, who mm-hmm. wrote uh, nothing. <laughs> that was good. Well, no, no, no. He has a short movie, like a short film. And he wrote the first draft of the remake of The Crow, which has not come out yet. And was he... there any news on casting for that? No. Because I have... After we we've talked announced... about it, yeah. The studio is determined to have a movie out simply to preserve the copyright, but that's about it. Doesn't that mean they need to actually produce the movie at some point? Well, uh, maybe we'll have a repeat of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. They'll do it over a month in a million dollars. Still would be better than the later Crow uh, sequels. It's hard to... Roger Corman would be better than most Crow sequels. It's hard to surpass that, to be honest. And he also wrote the, also never produce, titleless sequel for Tron Legacy. So we know that there's a guy, but we know virtually nothing about him. Well, or we do know talents. one thing about him. He is not good at picking projects. Well, you're a new scriptwriter in Hollywood. You take what they give you. If they tell you, oh, I like your short movie. Write a draft for The Crow. You would be fooled to I say guess, no. I guess yeah. I would. So it's, it's one of those we know nothing. He, he could be the new Petit Chefesky. He could be Joe Esterhaus, which <laughs> we hope not. He could be Uwe Ball. Uh, well, that's the director. Um... I'm pretty sure he screen wrote some stuff too. Pounding your head onto a keyboard and, and <laughs> producing right. what's coming out is not actually screenwriting. That's screen pounding. He could be a giant Labrador actually, you know, just pounding the keyboard with his paws. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, but you know, the movie is going forward, which is interesting. There was a short period in which comic book movies actually meant comic book movies other than superheroes where we got you know history of violence and american splendor ghost world and yeah great movies by the way all of them great great movies yeah. so it will be nice if the comic book movie boom would be for something other than another marvel movie another dc movie sure which i like for their point but i want to see something else i think that i mean i still and jeff lemire and dustin Hugan, if even if i don't like the comics they deserve get that success. money. Yeah, give get them, that give cash. Them, give them money. Get the big cash money bag. Absolutely. I think that one possible advantage that people don't really talk about in terms of this whole superhero boom in cinema is that maybe it has, in the eyes of conservative studio heads at the very least, legitimized the medium at some point. Even if it's just as something that they but can we exploit. Don't, but we don't see it. We don't see Not any... yet. Well, we, there was a short period, but then it stopped. What was the last big adaptation of a comic to screen that wasn't a superhero movie? Dark Country. What's Dark Country? Uh, Thomas Jane graphic novel. Really? Yeah, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, I I didn't even heard of that. Oh. See, well, I guess Bullet to the Heads, and which again nobody watched, hmm. which was based on a French comic nobody read. There was something with Ed Brubaker, wasn't there, in twenty thirteen? Uh, something Death Angel, something like no, that. No, but that was the thing he wrote directly. Oh, okay. it wasn't based on a comic, All right. and it was a TV. Which is mo- also a way they can go. Although the last time a Marvel, the, the last oh, time a comic oh, writer uh, tried to Dread, twenty thirteen. That was May it rest in peace. Yeah, they're they're working on a TV show apparently. They're, Seriously, they're trying. They're trying to get the budget for a TV. I need sequel. to call Netflix right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hello, customer service. Get well, Dread. They're, they're asking for supporters to vote on Netflix for it to be produced. Hell so. yes. Yeah. I hope they get it. But yeah, there isn't many of those, and it's a shame because you know there's so many comic. Well, I don't. I don't want to read the comics just to see the movie. But there's so many comics that would make. In theory, a great movie. Yeah. Or a great TV show. It would sort of fall into the old 
discussion point of if I'm going to go see an adaptation of a comic that already exists, I need the adaptation to do something that the comic doesn't. Yeah. And that might be a trick that for creator-owned work is harder. Like when you think about Descender as a series versus Descender as a movie, it's hard for me to see, like, what would a movie contribute? It would be more realistic in terms of its style, but then that's not really the appeal of Descender. They would re-release AI artificial intelligence and say, that's the Descender movie. Mm. See, it's based on a comic. That did not... Well, uh, Scott Pilgrim did a very good work in both being loyal to the comic and sure. completely different, simply yeah. on the basis of compressing the plot of six graphic novels into it an also, hour and a half. I mean, to be blunt, I, I do I love Brian Lee O'Malley, but the movie, because the last act of Scott Pilgrim, the book series, kind of goes off the rails, mm. and the movie doesn't. The movie really took it to, you know, it ends with a great climax, it ends with a good point with, with uh, Knives... It works. All thriller, no filler. Yeah. So Speaking of TV. Yes. So, this is you. Oh, boy. Okay. So it has been officially confirmed that Flash and Supergirl will be crossing over. Oh, uh, they're in the same continuity. I did not know that. I don't know. Here's the thing. What they're saying is that Grant Gustin, who plays Barry Allen, will be appearing on an episode airing March 28th. Mm-hmm. Details are sparse. Partly because it's implied that he's going to be jumping into her reality, so they're not actually in the same continuity. Oh, uh, they introduced the cosmic treadmill to the TV Last show. That, I don't watch it, but it sounds so amazingly bizarre. You're miss, I mean, Grodd's there. Gorilla yeah. City has been established. You're, you're missing. Well, yeah. I say that, but here's the other reason I don't know too many details. I've quit the show. Oh. So I'm hyping you up for it, and I've already left it. Although Our, our single connection to TV comic book is gone. Uh, yeah. See, here's the thing. The Flash, you remember, like, what did I say was the most appealing thing about The Flash when it was airing? Light and funny. Light and funny. It yeah. ain't no light and no funny no more. Stark Flash. It has been... Flash Dark. Dark Flashes. They've introduced this character called Patty Spivet, who was meant to function as a temporary love interest for Barry Allen while Iris is off cooling her heels doing whatever. Mm-hmm. And she was one of the most poorly constructed characters ever you know the type of character where if somebody has a secret she'll stand next to you and be like passive aggressive and be like i always feel like you're hiding something from me why don't you trust me why don't you try and like have that be the conversation for 10 straight episodes sounds like dropping anvils like wily coyote just all over the place and then they finally got rid of her and then like don't forget that on top of all this, they had the Hawkman thing going on, all that crossover nonsense. And now Nothing good she's there. gone and they introduced Wally West and he's kind of a jackass. And that's not fun because that's not Wally. And then it's... See, I heard you say oh. Wally and I was like, oh, they introduced a cute tiny robot. And then no, said, Wally West, dude. Oh, so- my Flash. Mm-hmm. My Flash is Wally West. Barry Allen died when I was in the first grade. I don't care what happened. I was into Impulse, so, you know. Oh, Impulse was adorable. Yeah. I do miss him. You know, that... Every generation has its own Flash. Sure. Wait a minute. He But Impulse wasn't. Well... Then Jeff Speed Johns Star. turned him well, into the Flash and he died in 14 issues. He Could, had his couldn't own... Couldn't help it. Speedstar. Speedstar. No, yeah, no, uh, no Jeff Johns turned him into Kid Flash. Somebody else turned him into Flash Flash. Venditti? Maybe. I feel like it might have been Venditti. I don't know. Anyway, so 
setting aside the fact that I've dropped the show and the mm-hmm. Supergirl crossover is not bringing me back because that's just more of the same. It is interesting, though, that they've managed to do this because these are two properties that are owned by DC but airing on different networks. So they're literally just taking the main character and dropping him into a different continuity and then presumably bringing him back. Why not? Let's, literally, let's be honest. why not? Let's be honest. This is a ratings thing. Right? Yeah, they're so- trying to bump up Supergirl. Do you think that it would fix anything if Supergirl became like part of the Arrowverse, so to speak? Oh, well, the Arrowverse seems to be doing pretty well ratings-wise. So, yeah, you know. Although, apparently, from people who've been watching it, it is getting worse every season. Well, yeah, but they still watch it. So Also, they... they Listen, I'm, I'm gonna spoil something now because I don't care. But mm-hmm. if anyone's listening who's watching Arrow, first of all, you're wrong. Second of all, <laughs> no, seriously though, I'll spoil this for you. Yes, right? yes. Okay. They killed off Amanda Waller. I could you say shame, but I don't know that Amanda Waller. You don't no, know Amanda I, Waller. No, I don't know that TV's version of Amanda Waller. I would care if they killed the comics Amanda Waller. Maybe <sighs> I don't care if they kill her in the TV show because I don't watch it. I mean, listen. You could tell me they killed Superman in the no, TV show, me, and I would be. I, okay. They're doing the death of Superman. Was it Doomsday? Is I, there a funeral? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Is he going to Kryptonian heaven so his father can save I, him with I, a lawnmower? You can tell me they killed Dead Man, and I wouldn't care. <laughs> they're no, bringing him to life. They're, kill, the they're reverse killing him. It, it's a principle for me. Like when you have a show that I mean, look, Smallville was ridiculous. You know, I but think, when Pam you know, Greer without, was we, Amanda Waller, you did not. Without even watching it, I'm knowing. I know why they killed her. They had to. Why? The studio forced them to scratch off everything Suicide Squad related. Oh, because they. I remember the news saying they were supposed to have Harley Quinn identified yes. as Harley Quinn, but then they just killed the character off and erased her. No, they didn't kill her off. Oh. She. What no, happened but they was can't, they can't say the name Harley Quinn. What happened was, I don't know if this was mm. a first season or second season episode, but when they introduced the Suicide Squad on Arrow, there's a scene where they're standing in front of a cell and, and uh, the guy is arguing with oh. his wife. And Tara Strong, the voice actress for Harley Quinn, you only see her from the back, but she has like the pigtails. And she says, uh, do you cuties need some counseling? I'm a little licensed therapist. So since so, the movie is coming out, they're not allowed I to guess introduce... So conflicting versions i guess that that would so, make sense know. although and look if i have to choose between cynthia robinson adai and viola davis as amanda waller so, gee i wonder who i'm gonna go so, with right so it's, it's, but it's still sort of like well, don't okay. screw with amanda they, waller. they forced their hand on that i guess but it's, I, I have to assume uh anyway i i don't care but it seems to be working for them at least to a point and this was the whole thing about Comic books in the you know sixties, seventies, eighties were second issue you bring in Spider Man in Marvel yep. comics, no matter what, because the new character needs the, needs the boost, and it worked up until they overdid it with Spider Man, and then they said, well, we'll bring in Wolverine, and then they overdid it with Wolverine, and now they have nobody. There is no single character in Marvel that you can say, well, he's in the comic now, so I guess all of the that their present sort of boosted. well, maybe Deadpool. Bringing in Deadpool seems to be the thing, and in DC, I think you're right. Yeah, and in DC, Harley Quinn. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We reach a point where I think DC should probably do a Superman comic starring Harley Quinn, just to beg people to buy back, you know, Superman. It's like, look, it's Harley Quinn, and there's Superman on the no, side. No, but but you know that that would only work while she was still on the book. As and, soon as she leaves, yeah, well, sales go back well, down. That's the point of it. I guess. So that's the news, right? Yep. Yeah. Shall we go on to actual reviews? Let's. Comics. Yes. 
So what do you uh, want to start with? Uh, we will start with iMage, I believe, simply because we have never reviewed the comics from Action Lab. This is our first Action Lab comic. I'm, I was kind of surprised at that, and then I looked at the catalog of Action Lab, <laughs> and I realized Action. why. Well, no, they have some nice titles. They do have they, Prince, Tom? Yes, Princeless and uh, Molly Danger. Uh, it's not the type of stuff that I like, but it, it's the type of stuff that needs done, as it were. Sounds good. I'm not convinced that they that anyway, they are good. But, okay. uh, I Mage, written by Gary Tenner, with artist Carlos E. Gomez. And, and coloring by Eddie Swan. Yes. And this is the story. We're in a land ruled entirely by magic. Mm. There's all dozens of kinds of magic. You know, there's white magic and black magic and necromantic magic and Magic Johnson and whatever. <laughs> and one dude that walks the land are the teacher-student uh, dudes, uh, screener, the old teacher, and... Sawa, mm-hmm. Sawa, who's a young student, she's very opinionated and she knows what she's doing and she's basically, she's not taking any crap. Mm-hmm. And on an adventure, sort, they chance upon a boy, a strange boy from a distant unknown land who speaks a strange language and he has a weird metallical golem with him and also he has his new kind of magic called technology. Mm. And they sort of decide on the spot, well, we don't know who it is. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but we can use that, this boy for our own reasons. And mm. that's the plot. Yes, it is. What you know, we, we, well, we've talked about it uh, an episode after Gutter Magic, and I was exactly. like... Exactly. Do I not have this on my notes right here? <laughs> yeah. Gutter Magic. We gave them hell for Expo Speak, and they did it again. Yeah, but, but I would say this one... Here, the exospeak is sort of kept for, A, the opening. We have a long narration on the opening. And for the end, the actual adventure itself is a lot more naturalistic in presentation. Not true. The, yes, yes. because Well, the characters explain stuff, but they have a reason. Because no. this boy comes from a strange land, and they're asking him, you know, oh, what sort of magic you are doing? And he's like, what's some magic? But even before that, like the scene that completely took me out of this book and re- mm. made me realize that it really wasn't that good. There's a scene where Zawa starts arguing with her teacher about like whether they believe in God. Like, what do you always blame the gods? While the kid is just sitting in the background being like, what the hell are the two of you talking See, about? I, what I, gods? And I actually like, like that scene. It sort of reminds me... You're having an argument in the middle of a crisis. No, it's not a crisis. They've saved the boy and, and they start finding reasons. And she has this ready-made explanation. It's the gods. And sure. he's shouting at her. For, That's so lazy. But it goes on for so long. It's, no, it's lazy actually, exposition. I, no, I actually found it to be a very funny and, well, not super naturalistic, but a lot more naturalistic than Gutter Magic. And that's my opinion okay. about this title. It's not something that's for me, and I'm probably not going to come back for issue two, but mm. it knows what it does, and what it does, it does a whole lot better than Gutter Magic, and I would assume many other titles of its kind. I haven't read many. It's well made. It's well crafted. It has a point. It has a beginning, middle, and end. It knows what it's doing. You know, technology versus magic. Not something new in fantasy literature or in science fiction. Especially well, not lately. Yeah, a well-trodden territory, but it's a territory. It has an idea. By the end of the first issue, we know enough in theory to be intrigued about why do they want that boy. Because they're not evil, but they have this sort of scheme dependent upon him and dependent upon him not realizing they're using him. And at the same point, they're not all-knowing also. They literally do not understand what the technology is. They just think, oh, it's a different kind of magic, not right. realizing it's something... They refer to like the giant robot as a steel As a golem, robot. yeah. Okay. They're not realizing it's something completely different from behind their frame of references. 
So, you know, perfectly fine for me. It's not something that I would come back to, but I would recommend it for, say, younger readers. I would set the bar a little higher, to be honest. Mm. Like, what, what struck me most about this issue was the utter lack of ambition. As you said, the theme of magic versus technology is something that has been done and done more successfully in other titles. If this were an all-ages book that was explicitly that way... I think it is. I, I don't know if it is, it, because it doesn't really have that whole sort of upbeat tone that you usually associate well, with yeah, all but age you titles. Know. It doesn't seem that way, at least for in terms of its design. It's more all-ages in the term of like, do uh, you remember the 1980s Marvel power pack or something which is it's young and you have kid characters but it's not like super sweet and adorable power pack wasn't super sweet and adorable the 1980s version by oh my Louis God. not that they had to punish her as a guest star twice yeah and and they fought you know world ending vampires or those something. are when they went into the marvel universe but yeah. usually they would be like but, you know, but it's not but it's not as sweet as the, as the 2000s whatever. gary samrock version which was very right. light and fluffy and nowadays when you think about kids comics you think for better or worse about the stuff like kaboom makes which is yeah. in presentation if nothing else always you know very cartoony yeah. much more than the and this is more in style you know realistic drafting i don't know if i go that well far, not, it's but... in style the drawing style here it's not super realistic but it doesn't try to be super distorted yeah, it's either not chibi yeah or something like that and you know um it, my, it my also thing... doesn't really work for me i you know the old teacher Fine. Why does he have a six pack? He has he, abs as hell. Yeah, he's an old teacher, you know. Gray he has mutton chops, yeah. for God's sake. You know, gray mutton chops is one thing. Why does he need this super sleek body? And okay, and she's she's as tall as he is. Yeah, and and it says here because they actually have a D and D style character description with you know weight and class and dexterity. Is it related to a game? Not as far as I Ma- can maybe tell. because maybe the scary tenor guy is a game designer. Maybe it's you know one of those spin-offs from a fictional universe. I f- no, anyway, I, I think anyway, it says here she's four point eleven inches. So the boy's like what three point five? The plane, the plane. Yeah, it's it's uh, very it's very <laughs> odd. My God, but um, uh, but the storytelling is fine. You know, it's, that's, a, that's again where not, I mean. not ambitious, but fine. So that's where our opinions mm. are diverging here. I think because I think that the storytelling is. Like the most charitable thing I can say about it is that it's unambitious. But unfortunately, the reality of the situation here is that if you are looking for science versus technology in an all ages book, uh, you could probably do better yeah, than again, this. Again, again, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying no. This isn't about perfection. It's about you need to bring something to the table. Hmm. This is something that we we say about so many books, right? It's not enough to toe the line and color within the lines and be like, here is this perfectly mediocre, perfectly average, unremarkable no, no, no. in any way. No, no, thing. I think it resembles all of the other things that you like no, and, no. and has nothing I, to offer in itself. I disagree. I think they have sort of an. Like they what? have an ambition. They want to tell a story. It's not the story I want to read. And from the first issue, they're not telling it in a way that would make me come back. But I don't think it's bad. And I think there has to be... I there, didn't say bad. Yeah, yeah, I there said is unambitious. A, yeah, there is a separating line between something like gutter magic and this. No. I, see, I, I, I group them both together in the sense that I think that the source of their failure is the same. What we have here in both cases is a failure of imagination. What went wrong with gutter magic was the fact that you had this whole world and yet your only way of accessing that world is to sit and listen to two characters pontificate about it with every step that they take. 
God forbid you see something and just pick it up, you know, being shown rather than told. Still, you have to have like it all laid out here with the goblin market and the I'm magic. I'm still and struggling with the D&D style character introduction. She's neutral good. She's female. Yeah, wh- why? Why? And why only the one character? Why not all Presumably they're going to add one for every issue. Yeah, although I think that might be a little presumptuous yeah, on Action so Lab's weird. part. Anyway, uh, Action Lab had done better. You know, if you want an all-ages adventure title, you could read Princeless, which, yeah. again, not one of my favorites, but a well-performed story. Princeless, you can at least say, has an angle, has something new, right? It's the idea of this princess who's like, screw this tower nonsense with these dragons, I'm gonna go uh, play pirate and, and yeah, they conquer have, the world. They also have like half a dozen Princelesses, sure, I think, spin-offs by but, now. But that's an angle that you can at least mm. say, you know, that's something that you don't see very often. So, you know, for for this book to be so completely bland, I'm not saying poorly written. It's not poorly written. It's competently written. But unfortunately, that is not enough. You can't just follow the how-to manual on how to write science versus technology stories and not give us something. Some twist. So some they've basic. rolled the D2 and their defenses were too weak for Sean. That didn't work for me. I'll, I'll say that straight up. Okay, uh, shall we move on to Valiant? And Let's that, move another on to one Valiant. we have oh. we've never reviewed the book from Valiant. Also, it's a, no, we, it's a it's we're, a we're breaking records. First. Yes, sure. Uh, and Sean, we we've never reviewed manga either, but we'll get to that. Yeah, too. yeah. Sean, you will introduce this. I one. will indeed. Okay, so we will be reviewing Faith Number One. This is by Jody Hauser, art by Francis Portella from Valiant. This is the first of a four part. And uh, Marguerite Savage also drawing some. Oh, scenes. really? Yeah, she's doing the flashback, the dream scenes. Oh, you know, I thought that looked like Savage. Oh, <laughs> her good name, for her. her I didn't read. I didn't look at it. Okay, I didn't, I didn't read the cover of the book. Why would I read the cover of the? Okay, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> so, all right. Okay. This is a spin-off slash sequel to Harbinger, which was written by Joshua Dissart at the time uh, and ended, I guess. Which Sean have read and I have not. It's the only Valiant book that I really, really enjoyed. Fine. Until now. So this series stars who I think, in terms of popular reception, is the most beloved character from the book, which is The Faith. internet's favorite, as it oh. were. Faith Herbert, also known as Zephyr. She is this telekinetic psychic whose main power is flight. And it's interesting to see how she functions in this book coming from Harbinger. See, the one, the one complaint I actually have about this is that I assumed her superhero name was Faith. It's like... In the title, and she, she's a superhero, so it's like reading a, buying a Spider-Man title and discovering that, you know, Spider-Man Parker is the hero's name, yeah. and his code name is Peter. There's a reason for that in story. And Faith is an... She, she called herself Zephyr when she was part of the mm-hmm. Renegades, and then after when she yeah, left... Yeah, and, them, and like, there's okay. a bit of confusion for new readers like yes. me, at least, but that's about it. Otherwise, it's a very good number one. Isn't it, though? Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this, like, I... Explain the plot, by the way, for our readers. I'll get uh, to listeners. that. Well, the plot... There's a bit of a trick here. Mm-hmm. In order to understand the plot, I do think that you need to have read Harbinger. Because what happens is, Harbinger was a series that was very dark, very realistic. And then you had this character who, like Kamala Khan when she first showed up, was a breath of fresh air. Because 
you know, Harbinger, they weren't superheroes, the the renegades. They were just sort of on the run from this evil corporation that wanted to kill them. So they were runaways, and as it One were. might say, absolutely. But she was, in that setting, in that context, the purest version of a superhero that you could get. She was a fangirl. She wanted to help people. Her sole motivation for getting in that suit and flying around and helping people was that she had a good heart. She's a legitimately good person. Now... That was Dysart's take on her, right? That was the way that he wrote her. In comes Jodie Hauser with this, and her interpretation of faith is a little different. What happens here is that with the renegades having collapsed under their own internal stresses and other events happening in the Valiant universe that I know nothing about, so I'm not the right person to ask about that, Faith has basically decided to strike out on her own. She's got a secret identity because she's got to have a secret identity. She's kind of like Melissa McCarthy in Spy with the wigs and the... Well, the yeah, she's ladies. working as a internet columnist in a BuzzFeed-esque website. Sure. <laughs> Writing stories such as 10 other guys named Chris who should play superheroes. <laughs> which is a great... I love a, it. It's a great gag. Now, that actually does sort of touch upon one of the... Not problems per se, but sort of an interesting change that Hauser introduces here, which is Hauser's view of Faith being this sort of meta fan, like she is a fan of the Marvel Universe, which is fictional in the Valiant Universe. And well, and without actually saying the name. You know, yeah, we, it's a bit, no, 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 she, they say the name. I mean, you really? know, Chris is who should be yeah, in the no, Marvel but Universe. They're, they're just saying, you know, Chris is, they're not saying... I think she read, says Chris Evans at some point. I don't think because... She's they, fantasizing about Chris Evans in the She's thinking about a very beautiful blonde boy named Chris. Sure. We know what she's talking about. We don't. It, it is a bit more on the nose in terms of her actual, like, mm. being a fangirl, even though that's a quality that endeared her to a lot of readers so she's actively well, fantasizing about well like, without reading renegades from your description of it was her on the run on the road so she had as normal as she could be was relating to the superhero identity she created yeah and here she's like this is how she is within the normal life you know with supporting cast of regular people unaware of her secret identity but this is who she can be when she doesn't have to be a superhero all yeah. the time as someone who I never read uh, what was the name of the title? Harbinger. See, it's no. He's like it's called Harbinger, but you they're called it. No, but they're, they're called, called the Renegades, and it's called Faith, but she's called Zephyr. Don't do that, please. <laughs> but as someone who's read very little of Valiant, but never Harbinger, and unfamiliar with the character in any way, shape, or form, this was a very good number one. It introduces a character. It introduces the setting. It introduces supporting cast. It shows her you more or less what her powers. That's a bit on the note because. Like you said, she can fly and she can do psionic stuff. Her flight is a product of her psionic yeah, ability. Yeah, but it's like, I would need, I think, a better power demonstration scene for issue number one. And there's some ongoing mystery in the background, as yeah. it were. The two big things, well, the one minor thing and the big thing that disturbed me. The minor thing is, again, the confusion about the name. Should have should have been more obvious, you know, Faith in the opening credits, you know, Faith now fights the good fight for Kruf Duchess and blah, 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 as Zephyr. Because but she want... doesn't call herself Zephyr anymore. Well, it, in the issue, somebody calls her. Matches... That was her public persona. It, well, yeah. So there's be... an in-story yeah, reason for there, that. I get yeah, that. but it should be made more clear. And yeah. be the end of the issue is an obvious. You wouldn't do that. Yeah. It's such an... <laughs> no, because they have. It is traditional. You yeah, have to but admit. yeah, it's, it's conventional. Kind of, it's a bit too much. You know, they have... there's this big climax, and she's under threat of something bad happening to her. We know nothing bad will happen to her. A better ending would be. Somebody that she knows or some someone innocent 
isn't friend and ooh, could she save them on time? You can't end the first issue with a will the hero survive? Well, probably, yes, obviously. You can do it, I don't know, at the end of the first arc, you know, what will be her new status quo? Will she get injured? Something. You can do it at the end of the first issue. That's too early to throw in a major character ending threat, for me at least. The thing here that mm. struck me, and in response to that, to that last page cliffhanger, yes, there's a very conscious decision to move away from the conventional model here. And what do I mean by that? Faith wants to help people, right? She's flying around town looking for problems, looking for, for ways that she can be of use. She stumbles across puppy nappers. Yes. That's the and, big threat of the issue. But it turns out these puppy nappers are armed. Now, I think you would agree with me here that in the typical superhero scenario, when you have an untested hero who throws herself into combat unprepared, she would have been punished for it. Right, she would have gotten beaten up, or uh, you know, they want to be heroic. They get the stuffing knocked out of them. Uh, that I, usually happens when it comes you, you to the newbies. I, for it happens a lot more these days. I think. Well, yeah, I, I, I just because I reread it recently, I thought about Marvel's uh, Gravity miniseries. Uh huh. Which Do you remember he, what happened to him after that? Yeah, but he actually stopped criminals in the first issue. Freedom Ring, remember that? That's something else. That's a different character. It is sort of a trope mm. that when you have the new hero and they're over-eager and they haven't really prepared, they jump into a situation, get in over their heads, and because they suffer physically, next time they'll be more careful. It's not necessary here. And I really appreciated that. The puppy nappers pull guns on her and they start shooting. Next panel, they're off the window. She basically telekinetically throws them out the window. And... It's not something that needs to happen with this character specifically. She doesn't need to have her head beaten in mm. with a crowbar and then resurrected 20 years uh, later it's not, it's not when that, a guy punches no, a wall. It's not right? that kind of book. No. Uh, yeah, she's not that kind of character. Yeah, it's and, a, yeah you know, you've talked to Miss Marvel. That's probably the... The best comparison. Yeah. Does Kamala Khan need to be like beaten to a bloody pulp so that she can have her revenge? She doesn't need... Well, thankfully, thankfully was, she's made of rubber so you cannot pulp her. But like, she doesn't need Born Again. No. You know what I mean? Born Again, when we think of See, nobody, the Born Again model for the overall superhero no, nobody story... Nobody actually needs Born Again other than 1980s Daredevil written by Frank Miller. No, that's not true, Tom. It, it happens every so often. You want to put your hero in through a the state ringer. of... Through the ringer. You want to put them in a state of peril so that they test yeah. themselves and, and they come the, out strong. Yeah, and most of the time it fails horribly because most of the writers are not 1980s It depends on the Frank execution. Mm. You know, it happens. Like when yeah. uh, when Gert was killed off on Runaways. That's that was terrible. It was terrible and it was heartrending, but it worked in the context of what Vaughn was doing. Uh, okay. It can be done, um, but she doesn't need that. This book doesn't need that, and I'm so glad that Hauser understands that. Because even when Dissert was throwing horrible, horrible things at the Renegades and Harbinger, he never did that to Faith. And I appreciate that. Okay, that that's still L- let's a thing. talk about the art a bit. Sure. Like now, like we said, there are fantasy sequences by Marguerite Savage. They are great because it's Marguerite Savage, <laughs> and because she wants to make out with Chris Evans. I yeah. mean, uh, that's art, perfect. Francis fan Portella, I am not familiar with. Have you read anything by him before, or no. was he in Valiant that you were aware of before? No, I don't remember who the artist was for. Har- Harbinger for Desert Run, but I do remember that the style was more realistic. Now, I don't know if this there's... Is a, this has a little more there, Is there a Valiant House style, would you say? No. No? Because this is a company that publishes Rye on the one hand with the mm. painted... 
yeah. and on the other hand, Bloodshot. Yeah, it's, it's something that could have been, you know, it's in terms of character presentation, it could be a Marvel Universe title. But, like you said, it's like all the rough edges rounded out, it's much thicker line. It's much more rounded and curvy, and pleasant would be the proper definition for the yeah. book. Yeah. I really like the scenery, I really like the bodies. I would have some problems with the faces. I don't know, the eyes. Yeah. The eyes and the way they hang around with the mouth and the nose doesn't really work for me. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe their artists need to get a better grasp for if it's his style, fine, but it's. It feels I, like I don't. It, I don't really like the faces here. It feels like it's trying to straddle a line between, on the one hand, a representation of a character, sort of like in the mold of the previous run, mm-hmm. while still indulging Faith's own tendency towards cartoonish imagination to like make her world look more like she sees it. But you have some great shots, like in page uh, eight, where you see her standing. In one side, and then you have her face with the glasses and the police yeah. reflected on them. That's a very nice shot. It is. Yeah, so... I but that's it. also not uh, Portella. That's Savage. Oh, right. Sorry. So, so, uh, so the shot where she's flying. You know, it's a very good superhero. You know, flies into the distance doing the Superman thing, as yeah. it were. So, faith number one. Are you Pre- sticking around for the whole thing? I will read it. I don't know if it's in single issues or in trade, but, you know, I, and I really... I should be checking out the Valiant Universe more because I hear some great things about... Some of the other titles. Uh, I sort of not, lost touch at not, some point. Not from you, but for instance, uh, The Linkwits got some great reviews, and there are characters that I'm interested in from their old version. Oh, that was... So really? I, what, who, like Ninjak? No, no, no. The Linkwits is uh, um, Quantum and Woody and Archer and oh. Armstrong. So, you know, they're fun. I like them. I should probably check the Valiant Universe more. It's bad, bad comic reader, Tom. Well, it's not prominent... Mm. Like, even when we talk about, like, the non-big two, Valiant don't really... Yeah, but there there is something nice about the idea of a superhero universe where it's still at the point of inception, where you can still sort of get the whole universe, as yeah. it were, and pretty, it won't bankrupt pretty easy. You. So, yeah. and I'm we, sticking around for the whole thing. I'm, it's, I'm is glad it, that is it, it... Is this an ongoing or a four-issue movie? Four-issue Although, I mean, well, listen, I would love an ongoing. Well, if it succeed. Sure, I hope so. Try, try again. And we shall finish with Image, as we do. Cry Havoc number one. Written by Simon Spurrier, with art by Ryan Kelly, and many, many a colorist. You have uh, Nick Filardi, Lee Loridge, and Matt Wilson. Each, wow. There's one doing the scene in the present, scene in the past, ah, and the future scene. That's okay. the point. It's that not, it's not, so yeah, it's, much. it's not a rush job. And if you read the back matter, they're basically saying, yes, we hired these three colorists for this reason okay okay the plot is this we have louise slash lou who is an ex-musician from uh, london who Mm. finds herself as a part of a mercenary team of special operators specializing supernatural in afghanistan following on the trail of an ex-intelligence officer for the cia who basically murdered her whole crew and set herself up as a sort of kurtz-esque cult leader Sounds about right. Yeah. Or yeah. so they say. The, well, they quote from the Heart of Darkness, you know, in the very first page. Yeah, so that wasn't the, subtle. No. <laughs> Sperrier has a lot of adventures. Subtlety, not always one of them. Mm. So, Cry Havoc number one. Sean, your thoughts? Well, it was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Uh, no, I'm not sure. I'm I, not, I, 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 explain. Why it was okay. a mess for you? So, Spurrier... Oh, I keep trying with Spurrier. I, I really... I mean, this is proof that I keep trying with Spurrier. So, the thing here that bothered me was that 
it's asynchronous, right? It's nonlinear. So the story jumps back and forth. Yeah, three ongoing plots. Is it were. three or is it two? What? She's in London with her girlfriend. She's she's in, in Afghanistan with the paramilitary, and she's in the cage. But and that's the, just a continuation. Well, yeah, of the paramilitary. Well, that's the first and last scene. In any event, the problem here is that the way that the issue is structured, the jumping back and forth really didn't work for me in terms of Spurrier's technique specifically, because he ends up leaving some gaps that, when you reread the issue, you realize something's missing here. Like for example. We see Lou in Afghanistan being tasked with tracking this leader. The next thing we see of her is she's in a cage. How did she get into the cage? Well, what no, that, that would happen in the next issues. Because Why we, would that happen in the next issues? Because issue? we have free ongoing timelines. It's like the I, Jason... I'm not convinced that that yes, is the angle for the entire series, yeah. though. Well, A, it's in the back matter. And B, it's like in the Jason Aaron Thor book when he first ran it, where you have the young Thor, modern Thor, and old Thor. Yeah. So you have three ongoing stories, and the fact that they chose three very distinct colorists to do each scene differently tells you that you know they're doing something else. Something about the specific alignment of the, now, of the timelines is a problem for well, me. I for think. me, not. And I think it's a very well-constructed issue. And again, I've read the back matter, and there's some very impressive work done there. Of the way each page is aligned in specific scene, you don't even notice until it tells you and you read it like, oh, that's very nice. So I think it's a very intellectually interesting story, even though it's a Simon Spurrier comic, so it basically shouts its themes at you from the get-go, but it has themes. It has a lot of interesting ideas. The problem is, you know, when you scratch to the surface of it, it's like special secret forces, you know, werewolves in Afghanistan. Like one half very intelligent, curiosity-inducing Peter Milligan comic, and one half G.I. Joe spin-off with, you know, they're, they're now were people. It's neither action enough to be enjoyable as, you know, super secret agents and the way they talk is generic. The other, oh God. yeah, the other secret agent people are like, one of them keeps quiet and one of them. When they start talking about the goats. Yes. <sighs> and on the other hand, you have something which is very vertigo-ish, you know, early vertigo in style. So the clash doesn't really work for me, but I appreciate what he's doing here. Mm, I think no. I will, I think I will check this out in a trade. And also, it's very good looking. We had a problem with Ryan Kelly when he did Survivors Club. Is it still ongoing? Does he do two series at once? It's still being solicited, so That's apparently. True. He's a workhorse, that guy. And this is a whole lot better because I can actually tell what's going on here art-wise. <laughs> I know what they're, what he's doing. My problem with the time jump here mm. is that you're following Lou in London with her girlfriend, and then you're jumping ahead to seeing her in a paramilitary group. She's an ex-violinist. It feels like the format allows Spurrier to jump over basic character introduction here, which is something that I need in order to decide whether or not I want to go in for another issue. The two versions of Lou that we meet, right? The one who is living with her girlfriend and then she's mugged by a werewolf and she doesn't have a job. She, she's working as a zookeeper and they have this whole long-winded and unnecessary discussion about hyenas. If anything, that's the problem. It's too connected. Everything in this book is connecting to the theme that the author is basically stating it to you from the get-go. Which is? Well, the animalistic nature of men. 
That's it? That's the theme? The animalistic nature of men? Well, that's a very general theme. They will obviously <laughs> develop, it, develop it. But if you are writing a first issue of an ongoing serial, it is your duty to present... If that's the theme you want to present... Well, there's... A, I'm you sorry, know, you got to do better than that. Well, there's other things there. Like, they're talking right. about the representation of hyenas. You know, it's a very big idea here of sort of the metaphorical image of beast and perversion what is wrong and what is right i do you recall the ellen moore's swamp thing thing with the female werewolf sure where he brought the idea of you know the, the revenging female up to a head as it were mm-hmm. so i think he's doing a variation on that here but it's not as straightforward no, it, yes not only is it not as straightforward it's not half as well executed as more did it because well not no, being as well executed as no no more. but it's not even in its own right because it's very difficult for me reading this issue to reconcile the two versions of this character that he's presenting and there's such a gap between them that i can't like you know which lou do you like better because I don't get the sense that they're the same well, character. Well, the shooty one. And then as soon as she gets to Afghanistan, she basically, like, any sense of personality that she has when she's in London pretty much evaporates. Then she wakes up in this cage with this weird, crazy cult yeah, lady who may also the, be a werewolf. Well, despite all her rage, she's still just a rat in the cage, as it were. I, again, I, I disagree. I see no reason to come back to this. I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm so okay. very intrigued. I don't think it'll be super great, but I think it's different. I think it's going someplace that I would naturally expect the book publishes. Werewolves on the Battlefront is going. And maybe I would prefer it to be straightforward, strange, action-y stuff. But, you know, it doesn't have to be. I'll give it a shot. And, uh, well, maybe it's just because I've read some of Sperrier's back matter recently. I've read all of his Judge Dredd 2008 stuff. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd go more recent. I read his X-Men Legacy. Mm. He has something going. He occasionally has good ideas, but then... The execution isn't... The execution falls short. And mm. I do feel like here, if you wanted to get your readers invested in the notion of... The thing is, I don't understand why the time jumping is necessary. Usually well, why when do you, you why have... Why do you do a big time jump? To... Not just because you can't. No, you're doing it to tell the readers, I will fill this in later. There is a big something that's planned. But usually when you have that kind of technique, it's for a very specific artistic reason, right? When you have time jumps in Why the Last Man, it's because it is significant that these periods of time are passing while other you're things are happening in the world. You're saying he didn't set the character enough for the time jump to be meaningful in any I don't understand way. why. Like, you could have just as easily had an issue in which he is in Afghanistan and then flashback then flashback because after after you set up the afghanistan scene you flashback and you're saying well how did this transformation because happen? the afghanistan mm. thing is completely disconnected from everything that okay. happens to her okay. in I, london okay. there's no causality okay here. and i see i see you i know, see your issue the, I, I, I when, when you think about it when issue. she's arguing with the other soldiers about like shooting the goat right and he tells her like why do we shoot the goat because it's a security risk because we're up in this helicopter and any movement we see on the ground could be somebody trying to kill us and she backs down. That doesn't seem to flow in any way from her having this contentious relationship with her girlfriend and being unaccomplished as a musician because she gets fired, which is one of the things that we find out in the time jump. There's no sense that these things are connected to each other, even taking into account the notion that Spurrier is like, don't worry, I'll fill in these gaps later. 
first get me interested in why I should care about these gaps in the first place. Like, is there a reason that you are doing this? Like, has the transformation changed her memories? Is this something that, because these aren't treated as flashbacks. These are treated as actual jumping back and forth in in time. You know, it's a useful narrative trick. If you're going to use a trick, you have to have a reason that the reader can see that trick. Like, okay, I get why you're doing this, right? I don't get why Spurrier is doing this. So, okay. Didn't work. So, for me. yeah, that's Cry Havoc. Shall we move on to trade review? Let's. Since we're doing uh, something different. Yes, yeah, something, yes, something completely different. We're doing a manga. Yes. For the first time in August board history. Oh, this is just a, an episode of first. Yeah, if we only done something from alternative comics instead of image, you know, we would be like bang, 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 bang. Technically, every image comic is an no, 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 from the company, alternative comics. There's a company called Alternative. Oh, comics. we could have gone like, or we could have just gone for like, I don't know, um, Boundless Bechdel, like really go to yeah. The... Okay, okay. So, so uh, One Punch Man, <laughs> written by a person called One, who's a webcomic artist. Is it One or O N E? One. Okay, you're supposed to say one. That's that's the pen name is work and drawn by Yusuka Muaranta, mm-hmm. published in the U.S. via Viz Media. Right, I got it through Shonen Jump. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I you, just you recommended think, this. I I recommended us trying it based on my love for the anime without okay. actually having read the manga. Before. Oh, so you okay? Yeah. So with me, it's going to be the opposite way because I'm mm-hmm. I haven't started the anime yeah. yet. Okay. Now we just need to explain that there are several versions of the story because it started. As a webcomic, written and drawn by one oh. in a very low-tech webcomic way. Like, when you see oh. in the back matter, when you see, you know, the very uh, low rendition of the character, that's the original version. That's why Saitama yeah. looks... Oh, okay. So, so then, uh, Yusuka Amoranda, who's a very well-regarded manga artist, he's written and drawn Shield 21, which is a long-running manga about football players. Has he ever worked on Dragon Ball Z? Uh, I because some so. of those monster designs, I felt like they came straight. Well, I don't Dragon know, Ball Z is very influential. I don't know nothing about Dragon Ball Z, but like, no, the monster most of there? the stuff he's written and drawn is not well well known to okay. us at least. Like uh, Sumi Hanashi means nothing to me, but yeah. I know I Shield Twenty One. I'm at least okay. familiar with it. So he really likes the webcomic, and he told the artist, "I want to do this as a proper manga in Shonen Jump." Good call. Okay, but. <laughs> It should also be noted there there are two versions of that because there's the version presented via the Shonen Jump subscription, right? Which is a much more web comic-y in nature because a lot you have a lot of the small panels like repeated and played with. It's like a mo- not motion comic, a um, throwback. Yeah, more like that. Okay. And you have the thing that we both read, which is a printed version of that. Right. <laughs> okay. Even All if right. you read it through the Shonen Jump website, you've read like the, the scan of the print version okay. of the okay. web. It's a very complicated explanation. Most manga is. <laughs> Usually when you try to piece together like the history of a work, you gotta go in deep. It's like inception. No, no, it's a... Layers and layers and So, layers. okay, the actual plot of One yes. Punch Man. Shall take, I explain it? Take it away. Okay, so we have this guy called Saitama, who's a superhero basically because he wants to be. He lives in a world of, you know, monsters and alien invasion. And he told himself one day, I want to be a superhero because I'm unemployed and I have nothing else to do. And so he basically became the world's most powerful superhero. You know, we jump three years later after his decision. And he's the world's strongest superhero who can solve any situation, problem or issue in one punch. <laughs> Anything and everything. 
His most powerful attack, you know, because when anime and manga characters attack, they have to call out their attacks, yeah. is a consecutive series of regular punches. And I can tell you in later issues of the manga TV show, he, one, he once has to call out one serious punch. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the thing that he goes when the chips are down. And this, the first uh, volume is basically him meeting a series of strange frats and they're all acting out and doing their big, huge speeches. I will destroy the earth. I will rule this world. And he's like, no, you won't. And they're this undercurrent of modeling insecurity because <laughs> having become the most powerful person in the world, he has nothing else to achieve. He's like, I've done it. I'm He's so, so bo- bored. He's so bored. <laughs> and that's the major uh, theme slash gag. And it's a great idea. The, un- like, the ennui the, of the strongest yeah, superhero in the world. Because in, it's less coming in US comic, but in manga, one of the bigger, one of the biggest recurring ideas is I want to become the master, right? I want to be... I want to be the best Very there best. is. Yes. Like no one ever was. Yeah, it's not even in Pokemon. Like in, uh, are you familiar with the term like seinen, shonen, stuff like that? Shonen? Is that when like they get really mad and their hair turns No, no. Shonen, is, aside from being a magazine, shonen is like a style of manga, which is basically the action adventure style where you have one super, uh, one hero character and a series of satellite characters, mm. and they all want to be the very best in whatever field there is. Like, I want to be the very best ninja, Naruto. I want to be the very best pirate, ah, One Piece. Okay. I want to be the very best wrestler, etc., right. etc. Et okay. So this is like the... What happens after you became the very right. best? What do you oh. do? What do you do after that? And I hadn't considered that. Yeah, well, because you're less familiar with me. So wow, okay. There's apparently a lot of jokes here that even with the translation are unclear to us. Like One Punch Man, as a name and design, is based on a very famous commercial in Japan. There's like One Punch Man, who's like a manga character who shysters for a bread. Like One Punch is a type of bread. <laughs> We, well, oh my god, yeah. there are layers here. Yeah, that, there are layers. Okay, so, so I, if you can't tell by my cackling throughout your entire review, I really like this book, but I will admit that the obstacle that always pops up for me when I'm reading manga is that, and there's no way around it, it's the, the, the way that Japanese literature works in terms of conventions of storytelling are different. They can be more of a challenge to get if you're really, your primary experiences with Western styles of, of storytelling. So you're thrown in, in Medias Res, right at the beginning with this monster just popping up out of the earth and Saitama just being like, can we go? Cause I have like, yeah. I left the washing machine on him. Yeah. He actually says something like that at the end yes. of the book. He said, cause we, this is the review of the first volume. He's at the, uh, he, uh, he, he says, at the I left the, the, to- the, no, no, no. He ends the fight and he's so angry, not because all the people died, but because, oh no, I missed the discounts in the store. Is that, it's yeah. not like I left the, the uh, there's two, washing there, machine on in my there, house or something. There's like, some, this yeah. is someone who, is so completely disinterested in, and, and like you can tell by the look on his face, like this is some, he does not emote. It's garbage day. I uh, forgot to put out the trash. Uh, right, like right. that's his horrible realization having like stomped this horrible monster. And I laughed so much at his, you know, because for all that he is disinterested, he still goes out and fights. Yeah. The yeah. He, he wants to be the hero. The thing is, he wants to be the hero. He wants a challenge. Yeah, he wants to be the hero because he thought there would still be a challenge. But there isn't any. And and he's bald. 
Well, that, that's he, like, when, it's a cause of concern. He, He's like, yeah, he, I'm bald. He, he lost his he lost his hair because of his powers, <laughs> because of his training. <laughs> And oh, what it, a delightful read. And he's, you know, he's heroic in the term of he, when he tells his secret origin story, like, I want to help people. I want to be a superhero yeah. j- for fun. There's a scene very early on mm. in the manga when they're looking, again, like this goes mm. back to the whole thing with conventions. Midway through the story, there's a flashback to what he was doing before he became a superhero. But it's not really indicated that it's a flashback. So you just sort of all of a sudden jump in and there, so he has like mm. this huge mane of black spiky hair. And he comes across this turtle monster screaming that he's going to kill a kid with a crab chin. monster. A, is it a crab monster? Because Crablenta he, is a crab monster, yes. Okay, so he's a crab monster who wants to kill a kid with a cleft chin because the kid drew nipples and permanent marker <laughs> on his shell. And so Saitama goes running down the street and finds the kid. And this kid has a cleft chin. Like, I gotta give props to Murata's art here. The kid has a cleft chin that makes him look like He's got testicles growing on the lower side of his face. I mean, listen, you saw that. Yes. Right? It's just, just hanging yeah. off the, the bottom of his face like Jay Leno could never. And he goes running off with this kid on his shoulders. And it's hilarious. It's yeah, okay. the, the visuals here. The are, character designs are great. Like, yeah. again, the crab, it's so over the top that it becomes both threatening and funny at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you ever read or watched Attack on Titan, but there's this... I started watching it yeah, and it's sort but, of... You know, like, it. there's this giant naked guy who's basically a riff on Attack on Titan. Oh. I assume In so. In this book? Well, yeah, the giant naked guy. The strong, oh, right. The, yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's a lot of inside jokes and jokes that aren't won't work if you don't know manga and anime to a point. The thing is, and that's always a problem for me with not all manga, but like 90% of it, their idea of how to construct a story page is so different. Yeah. It's like, let's cut out anything that's not the big action beat. There isn't any cutting down of the actions to a point. Like, what's an action scene? He's already thrown the punch and the guy already exploded. There isn't any, he prepares to throw the punch. The yeah. punch is midway. There's never any illustration of movement. It's a different emphasis on... Yeah. There is hardly any illustration of movement, only the illustration of the after effects of said movement. And it's it's not bad. It's just so different for me. It's like somebody described watching an Indian film for the first time. I mean, even if you grow to like it, it's just, why are they singing and dancing? It's just such a different approach to how a film should work. Or in this case... It's such a different approach to how yeah. a comic is constructed. Anime is easier to get into because it's a cartoon. You know, it's not going from one side to one side. And they have different uh, genres and they have different sure. ideas of how a story should work. But the presentation... Well, some anime also live and die based on how well they're able to tell their stories yeah. in a universal fashion. Yeah, yeah. But Cowboy pre- Bebop, for example, you can watch even if you don't know... Yeah, but know the presentation it. of a cartoon is always the presentation of a cartoon. Yeah, it's 24 frames, you know, goes right. in one way... A comic based on the medium itself has to be different on, you know, when, when you go through such different cultures. Yeah. So, especially was, when it's a book like this mm-hmm. that has, as far as I know, become very popular abroad. Oh, it's super popular. From what I understand, again, like I don't follow those particular circles, but I know that One Punch Man about two or three months ago was a huge meme online. People were going crazy for it. Yeah, yeah. You see like fan comics of, you know, One Punch Man versus Superman mm-hmm. and, and like really comedic and situations. It will be, and there's somebody's working on translation of the original webcomic. 
if a manga had to succeed in that way, I'm glad it's this one because for all my difficulty in the process of reading it, I'll like I laughed at certain points here. Like the sheer like sight of a sort of existential despair in being he's pummeled into the ground and the giant monster that's supposedly defeating is like, I'm the strongest man and Saitama just has like this little world bubble like, oh, tell me about it. Like, yeah, or or the thing where boom. the underground king where he has this huge fight, at least a fight worth his medal, you know, an enemy he can go out all against and then no, it was just a dream and the actual enemy that is a variation of the dream is a pathetic creature that runs away when he just shows up. Yeah. Now, uh, there are some hints here of something that will be more apparent in further volumes, at least based on the uh, anime. Mm. The character of the cyborg Genesis that appears here. Yeah. He becomes sort of the entry point for us into Saitama's world. He forces him, he basically forces Saitama to become his master. Like, well, that happens in this book. Yeah, too. but you know, Saitama is takes Saitama, him. As, Saitama, yeah. <laughs> Saitama. And, oh, great. and it's such, the, the TV show again and the manga also is such an interesting idea because what are they doing with this world and the way they develop it? Because it started with just him and the monsters, but then you discover there's a whole network of superheroes. Yeah. Like, the kid in the bike that you see in the flashback sequence for his childhood will become a main character. Oh, with the chin? No, 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 the kid with the oh, bicycle. Oh, the other kid. Yeah, the okay. kid with the bicycle. Like, you the can't do that. On the shoulders. Yeah. Okay. He will become the nameless rider because he cannot afford sponsorship. So, it's like a, a joke on Cayman Rider. Sponsorless rider, sorry. I mean, okay. Like, we do have to acknowledge that the in-jokes are harder if you don't know the background. This is something that is intertextual to a certain degree. Yeah. There's it's, a lot of in-jokes, but I think that, like me knowing nothing of those in-jokes, I don't think that... The actual slapstick is still very funny. It's yeah. like... Um, He's kind of like if Daria Morgendorfer had been mm. a superhero. No, I'm thinking but, uh, I'm thinking in terms of... Your, it's like Next Wave. Now, Next Wave had a lot of jokes that are meaningless if you, unless you're a Marvel fan. Like, what's the mindless ones? It's not funny unless you actually know the mindless one. Or Dormammu, you know, enjoying $40. It means nothing to you if you don't know that in regular comics, Dormammu is like this super evil world-conquering guy. And in Next Wave, you have this joke about him. I will need 40 of your Earth dollars and access to the Suicide Girl website. But you would know that about him just well, by looking yeah, at it. Yeah, or, or, like, or you if know, you didn't know. Okay, I'm gonna spoil next with a 10 year old coming oh, at no. this point. Devil, di- Devil Dinosaur means nothing to most people. You know, it's a funny image, but it's a lot funnier if you actually know what Devil Dinosaur is when he shows up at the end and he's the big boss. But, uh, next wave was still funny, even if you didn't know all of that. Yeah. And this is still funny. And yeah. the bigger theme of this, of what do I do now? The great thing about it is that is not the only theme because when you introduce other characters and they sort of have to understand, well, we're nothing compared to this guy, the side theme becomes, how can I be a hero when I know that, you know, mm. he's so much better than me and nothing that I will ever do is meaningful? You wouldn't think that it would be that deep. No, but, but it absolutely it, has that. It's, I've described it as the best Superman comics, uh, not starring <laughs> Superman. Or you know what? No, it's the best Superman comics since All-Star Superman. It's the understanding of, Having a character who's all powerful is not a limitation. It's just an opening of different storytelling avenue. I'll flat out say, I love Saitama. Yeah. Like, I love reading this book. Like, I, it's like, he's so much fun. And I don't remember ever feeling that way about Superman. He has his good intentions, like Faith, right? This mm-hmm. is a character who wants to do good. But the comedy in this particular case is like, 
he, by doing good is not really satisfying anything for him because he's like he really he dreams of fighting monsters that can actually take a punch. Also, he destroys all cities in his wake. Oh, CDZ has been destroyed. The, the actual name of the city is CDZ. That's so sure. funny. Oh well. So are you stick? You will read further volumes. I understand. No, what I'm going mm-hmm. to do is I've bumped up the anime. Mm. I want to watch the anime first to get sort of a general idea of how this mm-hmm. goes because. Operating on the assumption that the anime is a faithful translation, yeah, yeah. I think that I would rather stick with the show because on the occasions that I have tried to follow long form mm. manga like Claymore, you sort of understand at some point why the show stopped where it did because god damn it got crazy afterwards. It's like, listen, I don't have the patience to start delving into like this deep mythology. That's not what I'm here for. So, and, and like some of these mangas are long. One Piece. I think 100 volumes by now, halfway through. One Punch Man, I think, is like 12 or 13 volumes already. Yeah, that's Each short. one like 200 pages. Well, it's... Ain't nobody a, got time for that. Yeah, but it's a very quick read. Like, I've read the whole thing, the whole volume in less than an hour. It's super short. Because it's mostly, you know... Are boom. they all like that, though? Yeah, yeah, because that's that's one of the main jokes, you know. Whenever you have an actual character that stops and speaks for a long, long time, it becomes the gag that nobody... That Saitama doesn't listen. <laughs> he's like, oh, you know, God. the words finish the background. And he's like, what have I been yeah, doing? I forgot to take out the garbage. Yes. I left the iron on. So, uh, One Punch Man, <laughs> highly, recommended highly recommended both to watch and to read if you have not done so. The next time we record, I will have seen the anime. Yeah. That's a guarantee because it was something in my peripheral knowledge because we brought it up during the smorgies and it's been talked about so much. I think like in the last couple of months, more so than before, because this has been around for a while. When was this published? This was oh, at least and... I think three years back. Something yeah. Like that. So this has been going on for a while beforehand, um, but now it's really becoming prominent, and I I want more. I want more Saitama. I'm just trying to imagine like so it hasn't been dubbed, right? It's only I Japanese. don't know. I don't know. I think so. I I've watched the Japanese version. I probably will too with with the subtitles then. Yes. So, like, I'm just imagining, what would he sound like? Uh, oh, God. So, yeah, One Punch Man. I definitely recommend it. I don't know, um, because you could get the, the mangas themselves through Shonen Jump digitally. Yes. Go for it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, you could, you could buy them digitally. You can order the physical version via Vs. With the caveat that just, I give this recommendation with the sole caveat that, be aware of your aptitude with reading manga in general. Manga tropes, beware. No, not tropes, but just mm. in terms of, like, for me, a huge problem was the right to left thing. Mm. Because I would catch myself reading left to right by default, and then all of a sudden, like, wait, I the lost question, the track of okay, this conversation. Okay, so I'll ask you a question. Uh, would you f- say that this is a fitting first manga for somebody? Or would the jokes be overkill? Would, is too I much think, of a joke on older manga? I think, no, no, no. The, Content-wise, mm. I would say it's accessible because the in-jokes... Again, I'm assuming that the giant monsters that attack these cities are based on other properties. Because yeah. I know that the first one he fights is coming from Dragon Ball Z. I know I've seen that <laughs> face somewhere before with the little antennas on the forehead. Yeah, I know I've seen that somewhere. So there are... But then if you don't know that, it's still funny because the humor, okay. the humor is... Focus on Saitama's reaction to these situations, not the fact that they're, you know. Okay, so So. that's uh, One Punch Man. Yeah. Highly recommended. I'm Tom Shapiro. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.